I want to welcome you all to Wheaton Bible Church. As we get ready uh, for this part of our worship service, I'm going to call the ushers to please come to the front. Um, if you are new to the church, please do not feel obligated in participating in this part of our worship service. This is something that we do uh, as a church body. This is something that we practice um, as Christians. Uh, and I want to remind you that uh, always uh, there's th uh, three different ways for you to give. You could always give as we pass the plates. You could always give online by going to weedbible.org slash give. Or if you're worshiping with us online, you could always send your offerings to the offices of the church. You may pass the plates. As we pass the plates, I wanted to give you a quick update. One of the uh, things that we have been doing this year is we give you a, qu a quick update on the finances of the church uh, for two main reasons. Number one, for those of you that this is your local church, uh, it's important, and you're a member of the church, it's important for you to know where we are financially for you, so you know how to pray and how to uh, continue to support the church financially. But then the second reason why this is important for us uh, is because every year at the end of the year, I have to suffer. The elders have to suffer. The staff has to suffer because then we're asking the church to please give more so we could finish our budget well. So I'm praying that this year is different. Amen? Now, if you clap, you better give. So quick, uh, quick update. Uh, the first quarter of the year was kind of slow, so we were worried a little bit. But the second quarter of the year that we just finished actually got much better. We are still, at the beginning of the second quarter, we were still about 10% behind our, our yearly budget. Um, but in the midst of all of this, we do want to pause and celebrate something that we find unique and beautiful as a church. Um, one of the things that we track is not only how many people are giving in our church and how much people, how much people are giving to the church, but we also track uh, how many new givers are being added to the church. And I'm happy uh, to inform that in the second quarter, 93 different people uh, started to give to the church for the first time. So we want to give glory to God. So please, uh, so for those of you that are, uh, that are sustaining the church in prayer and financially, I want to thank you. Please continue to do that. For those of you that are part of the 93, uh, please bring more friends because we do need more people. Um, Let's continue to live the church in prayer and sustain the church financially. And the sermon today is actually uh, an explanation on why is it that generosity is so important. So let me pray. Uh, Lord Jesus, we are grateful that we get to gather one more time and worship your name together. We are grateful, Lord, that you have made of us uh, your body in which we need one another. We support one another, Lord, and we contribute and participate in what you're doing in this creation. Lord, as we talk about uh, this topic today, I pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you illuminate our minds, move our affections, and influence our will, because at the end of the day, we do want to be extravagant people that live extravagant lives for the glory of your name. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus and the churches. All right, so if you were here last week, um, you may remember that I said that we, we're pausing uh, for two weeks and the uh, series on the Gospel of Matthew because we're doing a two-week series called Extravagant. And what I explained last time is that the word extravagant can be seen as something negative or something positive. 
Um, from a positive perspective, that means that an extravagant is someone that is willing to, wi willing to give it all, spend it all, and sacrifice it all for that which that person found valuable and important, something beautiful. And I make the argument that the word extravagant is a really good word uh, to be used to describe what it means to be a Christian. Because the believer is someone that has found something so valuable, so important, so beautiful, so fulfilling that is willing to give him or herself up completely for that. And as Christians, that should be God, his church, and God's purposes. God, his church, and God's purposes. So last week we talked about being extravagant in the area of gifting. That you use your gifts for the glory of God, and you know that you need the gifts of somebody else and everybody else for your own well-being. Because at the end of the day, Romans 12 says that we belong one to one another. Today, then, I'm going to talk about a topic that, uh, listen, I've been a pastor long enough to know that when we talk about generosity, some people get completely uncomfortable. So how many of you guys get uncomfortable when we talk about money as a church? Please raise your hand. Okay, so how many of you guys love it? Raise your hand. <laughs> See, then 90% of the group is lying. Because you don't love it. But you don't enjoy it. So which one is it? For some of us, it's like, oh, it's nice to talk about it, but it's not really that important. Uh, wrong. Extremely important. So let me tell you what we're going to do today. I'm going to make you feel really guilty at the beginning of the sermon. <laughs> I'm prepping you for it. And then I'm going to give you tools for you to stop feeling guilty. And then at the end, I'm going to give you the power for you to find freedom from guilt. Amen? Make you feel really guilty, then give you tools, and then give you the, the power for you to stop being guilty. And start giving more. Got it? Listen up. We're going to talk about the love of money. That's the guilty part. The relationship with money. Those are the tools. And the redirection of money. That's where you're going to find the power. The love of money, the relationship with money, and the re redirection of money. For that, we're going to be looking at texts that probably none of you guys, not a lot of you uh, have spent time in it, thinking about this. But I find it extremely important. And it's Proverbs, actually two Proverbs. Proverbs 11 and Proverbs 18. From Proverbs 11, I'm going to read quite a few verses. And from Proverbs 18, I'm going to read two verses. So I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of God's word uh, as a sign of reverence uh, to him and his word. And if you are still with me, can you please say, I'm here. Proverbs chapter 11, starting in verse 1. The word of the Lord says, The Lord detests dishonest scales, but accurate weights find favor with him. When pride comes, there comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. When the righteous prospers, says verse 10, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Verse 24. One person gives freely, yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will be refreshed. People curse the one who hoards grain, but they pray uh, God's blessings and the one who is willing to sell. 
Those who trust in their riches, that will be verse uh, 28. Those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Now, Proverbs 18, starting in verse 10. The name of the Lord is a a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. Let me pray. Lord, we pray once again, asking for the presence of the Spirit as we open up a scripture. Please speak to us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You may take a seat. I completely skipped that last part. I'm so sorry. <laughs> All right. So, first point. The love of money. This is the premise. This is, my, this is how I start thinking about this topic. I'm going to try to convince you that every single one of us here, including the preacher, we all struggle with the love of money. My premise is that because you are a human being, a fallen human being, we all carry a certain level of greed within our hearts. That there's people that are more greed than others, that's a fact. But that we all, to a certain degree, struggle with greed to a certain level. And part of the reason why I say that is because we all struggle to a certain degree with the love of money. Now, this is what is interesting. When you look at the Bible, the Bible never, ever, ever says that there's something wrong with money. That there's something intrinsically wrong with money. The Bible never says that it, that it is wrong to have money, to work for money, um, to save money, to invest money, and to use money. There's nothing wrong with those things. The problem is not money per se. The problem is the love of money, Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. What is interesting about that phrase though, is that the word love there, in the original, shares the same root for the word friend. So this is what I understand Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6. That our problem with money is not money per se. It's our relationship with our money. It's when we think that our money is almost as close as a friend. And I think that many of us, including the preacher, struggle with that. Now, the book of Proverbs is going to make that case clear. And the book of Proverbs, chapter 11 and chapter 18, is going to try to convince you that that is true. Because unless we recognize that we struggle with certain level of greed, we could never find a solution. Anybody will tell you, if you're struggling with someone, something, everything starts by you recognizing that that's an issue. Amen? So I need you to do me a favor just to make you uncomfortable. Look at the person next to you and say, you have an issue. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> How is that sentence that long? <laughs> that, that's all, you have an issue. And now you turn around and you say exactly the same thing to the other person. No, you have an issue. Go ahead. This was meant, to feel, it was meant to make you feel guilty, but you guys are enjoying it for some reason. <laughs> we have issues. <laughs> Come back, people. Proper is gonna, the book of Proverbs is going to give you three reasons why we struggle with greed. 
Problem number one. The love of money gives us a toxic view of self. The love of money makes us think that we are better than everyone else. This comes from verses 1 and 2. Look at what it says. The Lord detests these honest scales. And then in verse 2 it says, when pride comes, there comes disgrace. And the author of the book of Proverbs is going to make a connection between verse 1 and verse 2. Actually, where first, verses 1 through 4 is a whole section. But he's going to make a connection between someone that is dishonest and pride. Now, this is super interesting. The word detest there is the same word that is used in the original to talk about idolatry. Now, that's, that's super important for me to, for you to see because it tells you that part of the reason why the Lord detests, hates dishonesty is because it's a form of idolatry. Is you are worshiping another God that is not the God of the Bible. And then the other here is painting this picture. This is a picture word in which we imagine someone going to the store and they're going to buy, let's say, rice. And if you know how that works, then you put rice on one side of the scale and then the other side you put the weight. And the amount of rice is supposed to match the price that you're supposed to pay. But the author says that there is someone that is dishonest that is moving things around to make you see that you have more rights when in reality you don't. Therefore, the Bible will call that cheating or stealing. It's not just fixing something. It's being completely dishonest. It's cheating. It's an act of idolatry. And the text says that the Lord detests that. you got to ask the question, why is it that people do that? Now, this is crazy. The text says that part of the reason why someone may be tempted to be dishonest is because of pride. And I'm going to make the argument that pride is the one thing that leads you to be tempted to compromise character. You know why? The text says the only reason why this man is cheating another person is because he thinks that he is superior to that other person. It's because he thinks that he is better than the other person. Because only the proud does not care about the other person and is willing to cheat for the sake of getting more money. And the Lord says that that's the reason why he detests. The love of money. Because he has the power um, to influence your character in such a way that you, are, that you can be tempted to compromise convictions. Why? Because deep down inside things, you think and I think that we are better because we have more money. Isn't that crazy? I'm going to make the argument that the more you have, the more tempted you're going to the more than you're going to be to think that you're better because you have more. The love of money, dishonesty, and pride is all one concept. Now, this is crazy. The text is going to say that the love of money, pride, and dishonesty is kind of a weapon of self-destruction. 
This is the thing. The guy that is cheating the customer, he thinks that he's being smart. What he does not know is that he's hurting himself. You know where that comes from? Look at verse 2 and 3. When pride comes, then comes disgrace. Verse 3. The unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Look at verse 24. Another person withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. And the three words that are important there is um, disgrace, duplicity, and poverty. And those three words mean this. When you are controlled by the love of money, you are bound to shame, you are ruined spiritually and uh, mentally, and you never find contentment. That is the word poverty. This is the thing. The love of money, pride, and dishonesty is never satisfied. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how much you have. It's never enough. That's why the love of money is dangerous, people. It gives you this toxic view of self. I mean, the only people that will, will, that will be willing to steal and cheat other people are actually the people that think that they're better. That put themselves first. Pride. Are you one of those? Do you actually think that you're better because you got more? Maybe not. But maybe you fall then in the second category or the second struggle that the book of Proverbs is going to show us. Because the book of Proverbs is going to show us that someone that struggles with the love of money tends to have this false sense of security. Look at what it says in Proverbs chapter 11 verse 4. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath. What is interesting about that last word, last phrase right there, the day of wrath, is that it's not like judgment day. The day of wrath in the book of Proverbs always means a day of crisis, a day of difficulty, a day of disaster. If I, if I put it in simple terms, it's like a really, 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 really bad day. But look what the Proverbs says. That when you are suffering, that when you are struggling, that when you are in a crisis, money is worthless. Worthless. You want me to prove it to you? Okay. Money cannot fix anxiety and depression. Even if you buy pills. Money cannot fix betrayal and dissolution. Money cannot fix pain and hurt. Money cannot fix loneliness and cannot buy real friends. Money cannot bring back the person you lost or replace the person you lost. Money cannot buy happiness, peace, and joy. It doesn't matter how many vacations you take, or how many toys you buy, or how many things you have to try to distract yourself. Wealth is still worthless in the day of trouble. Isn't that crazy? And here you have a whole society thinking that if we buy more, that if we have more, that if we collect more, that if, if, if we save more, then we'll be okay. Money is worthless in the day of trouble. 
Actually, he's going to say it again in verse 28. Those who trust in their riches will fall. Those of us that think that because we have more, will fall. Chapter 18, verse 11. The wealth of the rich is, the, is their fortified city. They imagine it a wall too high to scale. Here the proverb is giving us this picture of a city that in order to protect themselves, they build this humongous wall to find security. And what the proverb says is that a person that is trusting their money way too much is that a person that is concerned about keeping a lot of money and saving a lot of money to find security is, is a foolish behavior because that is just the product, and the text says, of your own imagination. This is almost saying it doesn't matter how big the, the wall is. Money still can save you from the day of trouble. Tell me if that's not a countercultural message. Tell me if this is not going against our own little natures that think that if we have more or we buy more, we will be okay. If there's something you can learn from the pandemic and recession is that today you have and tomorrow you don't. And if the Lord is not for you, you got nothing. It is foolish to trust in money. It is foolish to trust in the amount of money we get. I wonder how many of our church still trust money way too much. And that's actually really easy to check. Check how much you are obsessed with your bank account. Check, check how obsessed you are with your savings. Check how obsessed you are with your investments. See, the problem is not money. And it's not your bank account, and it's not your savings, and it's not the investment. The problem is that you trust that way too much. Now, if you're not feeling guilty by now, then let me give you another reason. See, because the greedy, someone that loves money way too much, or loves money, period, is someone that has a wrong definition of why is it that God gives money. Their purpose is completely off. See, one thing that I continue to say to the church time and time again is that my personal sins not only affect me, but affects my relationship with God, affects my wife, affects my girls, affects my friends, affects my family, affects my church. No sin ever comes in isolation. Your sins has social implications. Now listen up. If I'm struggling with greed, if I'm bound to the love of money, what makes me think that the way my relationship with money is not going to affect somebody else? See, this is the problem with someone that struggles with the love of money, with pride, that is willing to compromise, compromise character. The person sees the money as something that God has given them for their own pleasure, for their own joy, for their own happiness, for their own toys. But that is not the reason why God gives money. 
Actually, Proverbs 11:10 is going to make it clear. Look at how the community reacts when someone is struggling with greedy. When the wicked perish, you could say when the person is struggling with the love of money perish, there are shouts of joy. What? The community is like, oh, finally passed away. Verse 26. People, the community, curse the one who hoards grain. You know why that is? Because greed is selfish and indifferent. Greed does not care about people's needs. I was thinking about, I don't know why I was thinking about this, but you know during the pandemic, how everyone went crazy for toilet paper? <laughs> Actually, maybe I was thinking about your house, he's got, he's, he's got TP there. But anyway, I was thinking about toilet paper, and, and I remember clearly going to the store, and there was like one toilet paper per family. And we know, because of social media, that there are people with walls and walls of toilet paper. And I'm thinking, how often these people going to go to the washroom? <laughs> and who is thinking about the accumulation of toilet paper at the expense of everybody else's that is going to need it? Isn't that greed? With toilet paper. <laughs> That's what greed does. It's selfish, does not care about anyone, and is indifferent to the needs of other people. Isn't that true in modern days? This is why we have a ton of countries in the world that are full of resources. And the, le the levels of poverty are to the sky. Why? Because the people with power are greedy and care more about their own money than the country they were called to serve. The love of money is dangerous, church. It turns you into selfish and indifferent. Can you see why the book of Proverbs is going to spend quite a few time saying, you have to be careful with this. Greedy is not just one of those things, oh, it's nice to have. No, 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 no. This is dangerous stuff, people. So at the beginning when you told each other you got issues, you got issues, now you got to stop laughing. That is a major issue. So the question is this. Can we live different? Can we have a different attitude or behavior or relationship with money? Of course we do. And that takes us to the second point, the relationship with money. Now, I don't know if you noticed this, but when we read the text, there's one word that appears three times in the text, and it's the word righteous. It appears in verse 4, it says, righteous delivers from death. It appears in verse 10, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. And in verse 28, when the righteous will thrive, uh, will thrive like a green leaf. Now, I got to spend some time explaining what the word righteous means in the book of Proverbs. The word uh, righteous in the book of Proverbs is someone with a godly character, someone that is honest, so a person of integrity, a loyal person. And I'm going to give you one more definition later on. But notice that the text is going to um, uh, compare the greedy with the righteous. That there is a completely different way to live and the way they see themselves and the way they see money and the way they, they function in this world. So, for example, if the greedy on one end 
because of his or her pride, develops a toxic view of self on one end. The righteous on the other end has a proper view of self. Look at what it says in verse 2 and 3. But with humility comes wisdom. The integrity of the upright guides dumb. Look at what the author is doing. He's saying, while the pride only thinks that he's better than everyone else and is willing to compromise character, the humble, on the other hand, does not see himself as better than anybody else. Therefore, he does not compromise integrity. And the logic of the text is this. And I'm going to do a little bit of practical theology here. The only way you fight, one of the ways you fight your love of money, is by cultivating a heart of humility. You know what that means? That you stop telling yourself that you're awesome. That you stop promoting yourself. Because if you buy into the idea that you're better than everybody else, you will use money to boost yourself up. But if you're humble, you will not be willing to compromise integrity. Can you see how those things go together? Listen, it seems like a little thing. But if we don't learn how to stop trying to promote ourselves, man, we're always going to struggle with the love of money. Listen, this is a, a, a simple example, but I think it's true. When you buy something that you really like, there could be only two motives on why you brag about that thing. Either because you want people to uh, join you in your happiness, look at what I bought. Or you brag so people could say, look at what I bought that you don't have. Can you see it? The humble refuses to use money as a way to exalt him or herself. That's how you fight it. Fighting the love of money starts with humility. A proper view of self. Number two, if the one is struggling, struggling with greed, the one that is struggling with the love of money has a false sense of security, the righteous, on the other hand, has a real sense of security. This is what I mean by that. He knows what's secure and what is not. Look at what it says in verse 4. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Verse 28. Those who trust in their riches will fall, but the righteous will thrive like a green leaf. Now, there's a couple of things that I want you to see there. Number one, the day of wrath and death is for everybody. The greedy and the righteous. There is no way around it. So even if you believe in the prosperity gospel, you are wrong. It doesn't matter how good you are, how generous you are, you're still going to suffer. That's what the text says. What makes the difference between the greedy and the righteous is that when the greedy is struggling, with per when someone is struggling with the love of money, when they struggle, the first thing they try to do is find security, security through their money or with their money. I got to buy this. I got to invest in this. I got to do these things because I need to feel secure. The, the righteous, on the other hand, 
has a completely different approach. In the midst of trouble, the righteous trust this. Verse, uh, chapter 18, verse 10. The name of the Lord is a fortified tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Let me say it again for the third time. There is nothing wrong with you having money. And work for money. And save money. And use money and invest money. Nothing wrong with that. The problem is that when you, if you struggle... What you run to is your bank account before you run to the Lord. Only he is your fortified city. Only he is your salvation. So let's do a little bit of practical theology here. Another thing that we need as Christians to fight against the love of money is not only to cultivate humility, but actually to practice generosity. Listen up, church, because I'm about to ask you for money. Listen up. <laughs> Part of the reason why we give, and we must give, is because we don't trust the Lord as much as we think we do. Because it is normal for fallen creatures to trust money much more than what we trust the Lord. And the Lord will not leave you alone. Until you learn to trust him more than when you trust your money. That's why you have to let it go. Here's a perfect example. Remember the Israelites coming out of Egypt? 40 years in the desert. And how, what does the Lord do to provide for them? He sends manna. And manna was kind of a powder that they collected every morning and they would make like bread with it. This is what is interesting. That manna came every morning. And you were supposed to collect manna every morning. People were supposed to work every morning and grab manna every morning. What is interesting is that the Lord told them that they should only grab manna according to their needs and the size of the family. So if there's two, three different family members in your family, that's how, how much manna you will collect. You will not have permission to collect for five people if there was only three members in your family. But the greedy people never understood that. So they'll go in the morning and collect more than what they needed. And actually, thinking that the Lord was not going to provide the following day, they would collect more. It almost feels like savings. Nothing wrong with savings, people. There's wisdom there. But they would collect more. You guys remember what happened to that manna? It'll get ruined. Every day. Why would the Lord not allow them to collect more manna than what they needed? Here's the principle. Because the Israelites had to learn to trust God as the ultimate provider. They had to trust God as the provider. Now they're working, now they're collection, now they're savings, now they're investments, God. And I'm going to argue that part of the reason why the humble is generous 
is because the humble knows that I must learn to trust the God, my God, with what I need. So here's a question for you. Do you actually trust him that much? You know how you know when we don't trust him as much? When you have to give it and you drag on it. I love you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. Look at y'all. I'm generous. This is part of the reason why the Bible, the New Testament, makes a, a, a distinction between giving and sacrificial giving. It is possible for anyone to give. But sacrificial giving is what is required for you to learn how to trust God. Sacrificial giving is when you give until you have to trust God. If that's not my giving, maybe, just maybe, I don't trust him as much. There's a third reason and a third distinction between the greedy, the one struggling with the love of money, and the righteous. See, the one struggling with greed thinks that the purpose of money is for his or her own good, happiness and whatever. The righteous, on the other hand, has a completely different understanding on why God gives money. Verse 10. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. Verse 25. A generous person refreshes others. Nothing more clear than that. It tells you that part of the reason why the Lord gives you money, and for some of us in abundance, is not for you to buy a bigger house and a bigger car and bigger toys and bigger lifestyle. You have it? Awesome. I'll go with you wherever you go. But that is not the primary purpose for money. The Lord gives money so we contribute to what the Lord is doing in this creation. Actually, Bruce, um, uh, Bruce Walkie, which is uh, the scholar in the book of Proverbs, he says that if, if the wicked has the tendency to disadvantage others for the sake of himself, the righteous, on the other hand, is willing to disadvantage himself for the sake of others. And Dr. Amy Sherman, which is a scholar and researcher, she says this, that the word righteous in the book of Proverbs has, is used in three, in three different ways. He says that the right, she says a right person is the one that cares uh, about rescuing those that are oppressed, bringing equity where there's brokenness, and bringing restoration when there is pain. And if that is true, then the righteous person is someone that understands that the Lord gives us money for our own needs, even for our own likes. But there's a bigger purpose than just that. That the purpose of money is for us to use this as an instrument of restoration. As an instrument to help the poor and the weak and the vulnerable. For us to invest in the places that matter. It's for us to contribute to the restoration of all things. It's for us to support the poor and the vulnerable. It's also to support organizations that are bringing beauty to this creation. And of course, as a pastor, I, I must say this. The Lord is giving you money because the is instrument, the number one instrument of restoration in this creation is God working through his church. This is part of the reason why we give to the church. Because as a church, we equip you 
we disciple you, we shepherd you, and we send you. That's crazy. I mean, I got tons of books that talks about what is, it, what is the purpose of the church and how is it the church supposed to change the world. And you got all these ideas and plans and stuff like that. And the more I think about it, the more I realize that the Bible has, God has only one plan for this creation. One plan for this creation. He rescues people. He makes them part of the church. And then he sends them out. Wow! That's God's plan. And your money is a gift from God for you to contribute to that. We don't ask you to give just because. It's because you need to grow in humility. You got to learn how to trust the Lord. And you have to spend and invest in that which is divine. God's plans. Now, finishing with all of these, people will say, well, Hannibal, I'm ready. I feel guilty. Now you gave me the tools. I'm going to change. And I'll give you about a week. <laughs> because if you get a really good month, you're going to give a lot. But if things get complicated, you become stingy again. How is it then that we should, can have a permanent change in our hearts so we continue to grow in humility we are not willing to compromise character. We become generous and we invest in divine things. Well, point number three, the re redirection of money. And this is what I'm going to do. I'm actually not going to tell you how to change that. I'm going to let somebody else tell you how to change that. So one of the members of the church, his name is Larry um, Robinson. He's written, he's written a bunch of stuff about this and he actually wrote a book about this. So I'm going to let you uh, learn from him. Pay attention to the screen. Every lesson that he gives me to share with someone else is a lesson for me first. We give, but sometimes it's easy in the process to set in your budget specific amounts. I approached one year a little bit differently and decided that I would vary the amount that I gave an offering. And I did it at a time that we were in the midst of retirement planning, but I wound up frequently giving Because I wanted it to be reflective of the relationship rather than reflective of my thoughts on budget constraint. Interesting thing happened was God blessed us financially that year greater than he ever blessed us before. So it expanded my thinking about it. The assumption would be that, that you're just kind of get worried about the, the quantity, but God wants gifts from people who want to give simply for people who think they have to give. So here's a life example. My oldest son had moved away from home and he was a young adult and one day he and I are talking and he said I found a, a, a new woman that I'm dating but then he shows more and he says so she's from Belize and I researched the national flower of Belize. 
said, and I had a single stem black lily sent to her office. That was in December. And so in February, we were having another conversation. And I said, oh, uh, hey, Valentine's Day is coming up. Uh, what you gonna do? Because I expected some very creative, exciting thing. And he said, oh, I don't know if I'm gonna do anything. And I said, oh, well, what's up, what's changed? He's like, oh, nothing, nothing, no, no, everything's, no, everything's the same. <laughs> and so I said, uh, no, everything's not the same. I said, you need to take this moment and examine why you're feeling, how are you feeling? I said, because a few weeks ago, there was this unabashed expression of creativity and desire to please and excite this person. And now on the day that she actually will be expecting a gift, there's a part of you that doesn't know that it wants to give anything at all. Since it doesn't matter if you change your mind and come away and give some gift to her that actually blows her mind, the fact that you're feeling this right now should tell you something about what you really feel about the relationship. My son is now married and has four children, um, but that is not the woman he chose to marry. I have found that our response to the opportunity to give presents to us a, a mirror that reflects back to us and those around us who are close enough to see aspects of our true feelings. Surprisingly, sometimes we're not honest with ourselves about how we really feel. And the interesting thing, the reason why I say a mirror is because even though it may reveal new information to us, it doesn't reveal new information to God because he already knows. And so he's actually given us an opportunity to see what he sees. And, and so we see glimpses in scripture of when people give, actually it's reflected both to them and to us aspects of how they really feel. Let's go to Malachi 3. What isn't talked about frequently when the scripture is read is the context of the scripture. In the verses preceding, God says is that he's speaking about his disappointment in his relationships with Israel and how their forefathers had repeatedly turned away from him. And he says, return to me and I'll return to you. And then the scripture says, and you ask, how can we His heart's desire was, how do we heal the relationship? And he simply uses giving as a path to the destination. Not the end, not the goal. A way to walk through. And so uh, I see what we call offertory giving is simply just a path uh, toward uh, the expression of that relationship. In every love relationship, every husband and every wife wants their spouse to give themselves fully. God wants to listen. We don't give because we have to, you know? Yeah, again, glory. We give because we want to. 
We don't give because we need to earn a relationship with God. We give because we have a relationship with God. We don't give because we need his approval. We give because we already have his approval. We don't become become people that are willing to give sacrificially because we need to fix a relationship with him. We become people that want to give sacrificially because of what Jesus Christ did. He died in our place. He took the wrath. He took the crisis. And now we have a relationship with him. See, God was generous first before he called us to be generous. Amen? Lord, we are grateful for this time together. We are grateful for your word. We are grateful, Lord, for um, aggressive grace confronting us uh, with our struggle with the love of money. But we are also grateful, Lord, for the evidences of your grace calling us, Lord, to cultivate humility and give generously and invest in, in divine purposes, Lord. We, we are grateful, Lord, for that. And we know, Lord, that the power to be able to do that does not come from just trying harder and being willing. We understand, Lord, that the only power to do that comes from knowing that we already have a restored relationship with you. That you gave yourself first. And now, as an act of adoration, we give ourselves to you. And we give from what we have for your purposes. And we pray for all this in the name of Jesus. And the church says...